Hello everyone and welcome to Short Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going very well, thank you Ed. Um, I have been thoroughly enjoying the, uh, I, would, I wouldn't call it a heatwave, it's just hotter than it has been after a particularly dreary May across the UK. Mm. Um, so I, I just think, yeah, I mean, I love living in the north and the further north i go the happier i seem to get but at the same time vitamin d isn't really available for like three quarters of the year so yeah maybe that's something i should consider in terms of looking after myself anywho how are you yeah i'm doing okay um plenty of vitamin d over here too much some might say uh (laughs) In Florida, but uh, you know, there's also hurricanes, so it all it all balances out. Did get quite a lot of impressive rain yesterday, which uh, we've been uh, wanting for a few weeks, which is always quite quite fun when you suddenly remember, oh yes, we are in the tropics. <laughs> like most of the time, it's just very warm, and then suddenly, you know, you just get this absolute like deluge that you know will wash you away if you're not careful and i don't know that i i I enjoy that as long as i'm inside when it happens less so when i'm out in it that tends to be more more problematic but no i'm good uh i have spent this week overthinking something so i want to run this past you Mm -hmm. so a few weeks ago you you recommended the, the book detransition baby on on this podcast and yes. that's a book that i've been meaning to read as well and so i ordered a copy it showed up the last week of may and i thought okay cool you know i'm fe- reading this other book by uh, nk jemison i'll finish that and then i'll read that but then i suddenly thought oh no i'll be reading this during pride month and i at the end of every month on my instagram you know i put up uh your pictures of all the books i'm reading and all i could think is will I look like one of these like terrible allies who's just kind of like, oh, for pride, I read a book by a trans woman and, uh, and you know, just try and make myself seem really important. So I found myself thinking, maybe that's a July book oh, <laughs> instead God, of June. You. No, I think, you know, the thing is, is that I've been raving to you about it for weeks. Mm-hmm. I actually finished it myself uh, the other day and it is spectacular. And I urge yeah. everyone to read this book. This is consider this another recommend. So I think because you're not reading it for Pride Month, that's just when it happened to come. And I think this is part of the. I'm not going to use the CC words, but this kind of mm-hmm. heightened sense of a lack of good faith on the internet because. Mm-hmm. Uh, your Instagram series, it's always really nice to see what you've been reading. And there's no reason for you to hold off because you're reading mm. other books as well. I think if yeah. you were like, hey, look at all of these books that just happen to be, you know, and I think your uh, your track record as an ally can, can withstand reading an excellent book. Um, mm. And I can't wait to see what Tori Peters has got for us next because I think you know, in terms of the push that we have for better representation, 
which is very important. I also don't want Tori Peters to feel limited to only writing about uh, trans experience. Do you know what I mean? And, and being put, yeah, you know, put in a box. So I'm really excited to see what she's reading next. But honestly, I think it's such a expansive, interesting, like socially insightful and like just it's sort of like acute the way that she talks about things so you said yourself that maybe you were overthinking it and I think I, mm-hmm. I mean not that being two cis people talking to each other lord knows but I, I, I think I think you're okay I wouldn't worry because I just don't mm. want you to it, it's just such an incredible book and I don't want you to sit on it for the sake of uh, <laughs> uh, um, my own neuroses yeah bless you now nah, I say I say go for it and if they uh, if they come for you I'll um they can come for me too <laughs> all right cool yeah I, I think it's just I mean this will also tie into uh, something we'll be talking about in our, our main topic but like also it's like the the, the general atmosphere around pride and, and social activist movements in general the way they get co-opted by various um corporate organizations and things like that like that also plays it in, into my mind it's like I don't want yeah people think that oh you know i'm just buying into this because of hashtag activism it literally is just like yeah you the, the post office delivered this book to me in the last week of may yeah. and i really want to watch it it's not uh you know all kind of like performative stuff it's just infrastructure works i guess <laughs> yeah sometimes sometimes it just happens like that you know usps and just it's a book that's gathering credence is that the right word um and attention seeming as it got released mm. in january and i only managed to get my hands on a Kindle copy, admittedly, about a month ago. So, plus, you know, even if you don't, you, you don't have to finish it in June. <laughs> you can start it. That's a good point. <laughs> That's a good point. So we'll go on to the news for this week. And uh, it's a fairly quiet week, I think, largely because it was Memorial Day on Monday. And so, like, everyone just kind of, you know, writes the week off, essentially. <laughs> um, it certainly seems to be the case in, in terms of film and television news. But there were a few things that... Um, caught our eye first of which was that uh cruella the disney prequel continues to do fairly well i think it fell off a fair bit this weekend in the u.s but then again it is already available for people to rent on disney plus and i think a lot of people have watched it there and um it's like it's doing it's doing fine you know certainly doing well in terms of what um people are used to in terms of how films do in the pandemic era Uh, it has been quite fun seeing you know like box office reporters putting numbers out again after a year where you know the number one movie at the box office would be you know unhinged with russell crowe where it would earn a million dollars and you would see uh those sort of stories and think man it's like the 70s (laughs) you know that's how much movies used to open to and be considered like runaway successes so it's been fun seeing um expectations shifting up against like oh you know 48 million for uh, Quiet Place Part 2, pretty good, you know, whereas usually, you know, a year ago that'd be considered sort of merely like, okay, and maybe slightly disappointing. But, uh, you know, people are starting to go back to movie theatres again, and that movie, I think more than A Quiet Place Part 2, uh, seems to be the source of a lot of discussion, because I think, you know, when it came out, there were a lot of you saying, like, who is this for? And, you know, there's the, a lot of discussion about, you know, like, you know it being a movie aimed at kind of like tweens and having this kind of like campy um quality to it in in some ways that you know providing a lot of grist for the mill for for passionate 
defences as well as passionate uh, derision of it because I think a lot of people look at that and think, I don't know why you would want to give Cruella the kind of sympathetic backstory that they've mm. given her. Why can't she just be, you know, someone who's into fashion and hates dogs? You know, you don't necessarily need to have given her, you know, the kind of tragic uh, exculpatory um backstory that they give her in that movie totally and it's kind of futile because it's like oh that dog murderer who's some suddenly so sympathetic and how convoluted the plot is but part of me is wondering like oh is this actually just kind of going to be a secret sort of camp classic and mm-hmm. i love a bit of camp don't get me wrong and and I remember some people on on Twitter this week, particularly in the UK, saying, oh, it's like everyone's really committing to a ridiculous bit. And I Mm. think there's something a bit more satisfying about everyone going, this is ridiculous. But it certainly isn't being sort of marketed that way. It is that real kind of, ah, the Lady Joker, (laughs) which is just the last thing any of us needed. But yeah, you're right. And I think it's kind of the similar... Who is this for argument and kind of confusion around the first Maleficent film mm, and mm-hmm. to a latter extent the second one which everyone was like okay cool to had totally forgotten about the first one but apparently this is what Ms Jolie would like to do now and yeah the first one I actually really enjoyed because I think it's again one of those darker fairy tale edges which is like oh this isn't really for children this is for tweens and as a sort of not not a disneyland adult but as a woman in her 20s watching it being like yeah we are misunderstood and it was quite exciting to have like a film that is quite blatantly like oh there's something really redemptive about this and the story that you've been told isn't correct but it's, mm-hmm. but it's much more interesting and compelling because Angelina Jolie has exactly that kind of aura about her and her massive yeah. switch from being like, I don't think people quite remember how much of the sort of like wild child she was until she became a parent herself. And then just her gears completely changed. And the idea of, you know, that woman that kissed her brother is going to be like a UNICEF ambassador in <laughs> Like ten years time, no, no, I don't think anyone would have put money on that. Um, mm-hmm. So, so she actually has like the sort of meta narrative to draw people in, and Maleficent is someone you know absolutely sod all about, and so there is actually a lot of room for a backstory there because it's like, oh yeah, well, did she do this because she wasn't invited to a party? And then it's like, oh, no, there's so much more to it than that. So that was interesting. You know, it fills out the universe because there isn't anything established in place like being a dog murderer. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah, so it's just a weird kind of like nonsense sort of retconning. But you know what, Ed? I might watch it when it comes out on that on that behemoth of a streaming service. And I will probably... Uh, have an alcoholic beverage in hand because I think that's probably how it was written and how it's meant to be watched. Mm. Yeah, my mum went to see it um, in the cinema the other day and she quite enjoyed it, but when she was describing it to me, it did sound somewhat deranged, (laughs) just in terms of like, 
because I, I kind of like would chime in with this handful of details that I knew, but then she would suddenly like bring up a bunch of other details from the plot. And I was like, what? Really? That's okay. That's that's strange. And then I've subsequently learned other things about uh, her, the film's direct connections to the 101 Dalmatians uh, movie that just make it sound even even stranger. And like they were really kind of like tying themselves in knots to try and like connect all of these details together, uh, which uh, admittedly does sound uh, interesting in and of itself. So yeah, might might check it out at some point, but. It's um I'm not I'm not rush I'm not clamoring to, mm. to check it out. Uh the only other kind of piece of news I had here were two pieces of casting news which um are are connected for the fact that they're both for projects that Keanu Reeves is currently in the process of making in some kind of extent or another. The the first of which being that uh Donnie Yen, the kind of martial arts uh, legend who who in most recent years is, is probably most famous for his work on the Ip Man movies, but has been in like tons and tons of of martial art movies and is just like one of the great physical uh performers currently working is going to be in john wick 4 which is very very exciting because that's a you know a series of films which the quality of the stories aside um i'm not a big fan of the second one and i think the third one's merely okay um the stunts in those movies are always kind of like immaculate and they're, they're some of the few american action movies that really understand the value of good stunts and composition and just like making the action as uh scintillating as possible to watch and he would just be such a great addition to that series i think i think he could bring something really good to it as you know a villain or an ally however they end up using him and then the other thing was uh, that christina rishi has been cast in the matrix 4 which is again very uh, exciting news i'm a big fan of christina ricci from uh, childhood uh, i loved her as wednesday adams and just kind of like always thought that she was such a fantastic screen presence and such a formative crush <laughs> for me as uh, for a lot of people i'm sure um but she hasn't really been in much high profile stuff since uh the last time she worked with um the wachowskis with uh, speed racer in 2008 um, she's obviously worked a lot since then, but it tends to be in smaller projects and television shows and things like that. So the chance, the possibility of her being in like a huge budget, high profile, very anticipated sequel and working, you know, in that in that world again uh, with uh, Lana Wachowski again, I think could be uh, really, really cool. And And yeah, again kind of underlines how little anyone really knows about what The Matrix 4 is going to be. And, and that in and of itself is is exciting for a sequel that comes at the kind of like the tail end of a very uh, strange journey for the Wachowskis uh, as creatives. Yeah, for sure. I'd completely forgotten that it's just Lana this time and not Lily mm. either. So that's really, yeah. really interesting to see how The Matrix is, particularly considering that they've both uh, transitioned and when they obviously made the matrix and their names they mm-hmm. you know and, and how looking back they're kind of like oh yeah there's an awful lot in here that could be interpreted as <laughs> that maybe we didn't intend but it's definitely there in terms of you know that gender is a prison um mm-hmm. as we all as we all know it to be i absolutely love christina ricci as well i just think she's fantastic and so underappreciated because I think Mm. in the 90s you know to me it was her and Winona Ryder that were like Mm -hmm. the real kind of Gen X poster girls and being quite kind of like you know 
wide-eyed and in a range of really different sort of projects and yeah we in terms of sort of big film projects Christina Ricci hasn't done an awful lot recently but she's been in so much tv and I wonder if part Mm. of it's kind of like that suits her better in terms of looking after her kid um who knows but I'm really looking forward to her being in such a tentpole as well because yeah I just think she's she's such a charismatic performer and I remember Mm. how amazing she was in Black Snake Moan and I think she's always just been a little bit ahead of her time and you know the fact that she has been around and working like near constantly since she was about eight years old I mean she is hilarious in Mermaids actually speaking of Winona Ryder Mm. and you know to hold your own against Cher when you're about six (laughs) is saying something so yeah I'm I'm stoked Mm, yeah um it's also quite interesting to wonder if that casting would have happened without the pandemic because I think under their original schedule like both of those movies would have been out by now I think yeah. but they were pretty they were at one point I think scheduled to release on the exact same day uh in 2021 and then uh, I think John Wick got pushed back so they were going to open within weeks of each other going to be a real um summer of Keanu but now obviously you know pandemics slowed down production on both of them so that's kind of an interesting thing to consider if if like that was always on the cards and it's only been announced now or if she got the role, you know, because of the delay and then think, uh, and, you know, the, the people making The Matrix 4 thinking, yeah, you know, who'd be good for this? Uh, and, and who we can get hold of now. Um, also, apparently, because I was looking up her projects earlier to kind of see what she'd been in recently, apparently she's in an episode of a an anthology television show called Cinema Toast, where <laughs> a bunch of acclaimed filmmakers obviously the duplasses um who would love to do an anthology (laughs) and love to be involved in things loads of various uh, directors have just done these like one-offs for this series on showtime created by jeff boehner who i believe is um aubrey plaza's husband yes and so she's in an episode that aubrey plaza directed um which uh, I find quite interesting and also kind of makes me aware, as again, of just, like, how much fucking stuff gets made now. Mm. The, this thing just, like, completely shot under my radar that's got a bunch of, like, really acclaimed directors have <laughs> apparently directed this anthology series and it's made absolutely, like, no ripples. So maybe it's terrible, but, like, it's the sort of thing that you would have, you would have expected to have heard of, much like what was it called, like Jupiter's End or something? The the Netflix disaster that cost like 200 million and has been cancelled and literally no one seems to have watched a single episode of. Oh, yeah, part of the Millerverse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not crying over that. <laughs> no, neither am I, although I did enjoy people sharing clips and screenshots of it and just saying, this cost $200 million. <laughs> it, um, it, it didn't look uh, of the highest quality. Uh, so we'll go on to the uh, main topic for this week. It's another show and tell episode where each of us is kind of bringing something to the table for discussion. Uh, Emily, why don't you start us off with your your offering, which uh, is is also a Netflix uh, production, the one that uh, decidedly did not cost two hundred million dollars. <laughs> Speaking of overthinking and concerns, mm-hmm. I've genuinely been 
having to keep myself in check and it's become a running joke in our household as to quite how angry I am about it and mm. I and I know I know it's not really anger you put it perfectly Ed because you've seen this as well and you put it perfectly when we were chatting just before we started recording and referred to being perplexed at the adulation which oh a beautiful phrase in itself but one that I was just so grateful to <laughs> to, know, <laughs> to know that you felt it as well so we are going to be talking because I am bringing as an offering Bo Burnham's inside mm. now in terms of overthinking and wanting to mitigate any upset I feel like disclaimers are important so uh, even if I were, I'd like to think that even if I weren't uh, a person who uh, has depression and is on medication and therapy and has had to manage it my entire life, even if I weren't that, I'd like to think that I would still, of course, not wish it on anyone. And the the thing I want most crucially is for Bo Burnham to be well. I wish him absolutely mm. no ill will. And as someone who is depressed and makes comedy, who often refers to depression, I totally understand why he's done it in that he's very clear in his intentions. This is going to be horrifically spoilerish, if that can even be sort of applied to this, by the way, folks. So you might want to just skip this whole section if you haven't watched it yet and want to wait. He says as much of uh, that he is doing this special for the hope that whilst watching it, we don't want to put a bullet through our heads and we can sort of forget about that kind of suicidal ideation for a spell because that's why he's making it and that's why he's doing it for himself. Now, the thing is, is that I just don't think the special itself is very good. And it's really difficult to talk about pieces of art where people have made themselves so vulnerable and it does feel a bit trickier to separate the art from the artist but in a very different way as in being like I don't want this to be seen as in any way criticizing his mental health or, mm. or illness um because he is incredibly raw about it in this special I think what I will say up top is what I really liked about it because again it's not something that, even though I am, even though I have a lot of anger, which of course says an awful lot more about me than it does anything about Mr. Burnham, there were still things that I liked about it. For example, I think the cinematography is absolutely stunning. Mm -hmm. He is an incredibly talented man. Like musically, he can really write a pretty ditty. He sings beautifully, and there are a couple of sort of flashes in it which I thought oh okay I think it's starting to get going this is really interesting and then it never quite came through to fulfillment and I think the thing is is that I feel like what he sort of scrapes against and never quite makes a sort of resoundingly resonant point which I think he's sort of getting to is that he is kind of reckoning with himself as to why he's even doing this and whether he's allowed because he sort of references his problematic past he's also 
sort of talking about like, oh, comedy is going to heal the world and I will and kind of highlighting the ridiculousness of how comedy, you know, generally likes to think that it changes hearts and minds through laughter and smiles when at a point in the world that has just been so horrendous, you know, that that is an incredibly pretentious and insensitive claim. But then he never really sort of goes beyond that. And I think a lot of it is him kind of trying to, you know, trying to anticipate criticism and protect himself Mm. from it, but without actually saying much of no. And the bit that got me really angry, no, you know what, I'm going to stop. I will, I will come back to the bit that made me really angry because the thing is, is that I also appreciate that I am probably not Bo Burnham's direct demographic. I was, I, I was sort of aware of him. I think I saw one of his specials, maybe it was Make Happy a while ago. Like he's, he never kind of <clears throat> broke through for me in the way that I think he has with so many other people from being on YouTube when he was 16. He's like the first YouTubers. It's, it's, I mean, that to me is like astounding and that he has been, you know, on the go for half his life pretty much in the public eye, which again is something that he's sort of starting to unpick in inside. But at the same time, it's like men really will do an hour and a half Netflix <laughs> special instead of going to therapy. Because mm. I was just, I spent most of it just really concerned for him because again, it's like, Bo, you don't have to do this. I have a big um, print that I, I bought uh, my boyfriend um, for his birthday. Oh, no, it's for Christmas, actually. Don't know why I, I had to correct myself. Who are you? <laughs> Who of our <laughs> listeners is going to fact check this? Anyway, it was Christmas for my own, the benefit of my own record. And it's a, um, I can never pronounce the artist's name correctly, so I'm really sorry. Um, but it's a just a sort of printed phrase. And it just said, art is the thing nobody asked you to do. Which is a nice mm. reminder to myself because I think whenever I try and do sort of creative endeavours, it's like, well, you really have to want to do it because no one is really asking for it, particularly in this world of uh, Patreons rather than patrons and uh, a lack of commissions. Anywho, but the thing is, is that I understand for personal reasons, as Bo says up top, this is what he's doing to try and keep himself alive. But I also don't think he necessarily had to show anyone. I also think I would have respected him a lot more if he'd released it for free on YouTube. I understand we all have to put money uh, in the bank in order to put food on the table. But the little bit that kind of... Okay, so I think it borders on a bit disingenuous. And that's something that I find really difficult to say because it's not to say that, you know, being an incredibly wealthy person who is critically and commercially... (laughs) lauded means that you can't be unwell it you know Mm. because you're in a long-term relationship with a partner doesn't mean you can't be mentally unwell but it's just a little bit like I couldn't help but feel like well he's not living in that room is he he's he's go he's going in to Lorene Scafaria and maybe she's made tea for them so I felt like I don't feel like we were on the inside at all I felt like he kept us on the outside the entire time and it was there it was this very specific experience I understand that he's trying to get across like it is not a documentary but I just couldn't help but feel he was more possibly trying to reflect our own experiences back to us instead of really his own which I get Mm -hmm. but it's also a little bit like but that's not 
that's not actually your experience like some people who who live in flats that are you know this is your nice outhouse in your la (laughs) property this is your recording studio this isn't where you live this is this is the only this is the only set and the way that he manages to make it look is incredible but you know again it's a little bit like yeah privilege so it did feel to me at times less like a comedy special and more like you know uh, you know, unwell white boys now have their lemonade. You know, this is mayonnaise. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And it just, it hurt me on different levels, Ed, because I think the thing that, uh, I guess Bo Burnham hasn't done anything this personal before. And I think, mm-hmm. and I think he's better when he's forced into a different perspective because I cannot emphasize how much I loved eighth grade. And I thought, yeah. oh, okay, maybe this is where Bo Burnham's, talent really lies because you know and he and Elsie Fisher and that she's tweeted being like people are congratulating me on Bo's latest special like I'm his manager or something I mean I'm not but thanks guys <laughs> and you know they clearly have this sort of ongoing relationship I think that film is so sensitive and brilliant and it's kind of eerie to have a white man understand what it's like to be <laughs> a preteen girl um or sort of just at that the, possibly the most awkward slice of your teenage years and Ed I never thought I'd say this but I would much rather this 30-year-old white man goes back to making films about girls, about little girls, <laughs> because it just kind of... So it's not great, right? And the bit that made me really angry was that after being so sensitive in eighth grade, there is the white woman's Instagram song. Which, right, yeah. Which was like, I mean, it is horrendously catchy. So I've just had it in my head since watching it. And I, and I, and I cannot express how, how sad this song makes me because it's not a specific like, oh, an influencer thing, right? It's literally just white women, but it's not white women. It's a very particular kind of white woman that he's singing about in exactly the way that he's trying to anticipate and deflect himself from being criticized in that way as well you know so it's like oh cool so you can dish it out but not for you and it's just a it's not a it's not there's no jokes in it it's a list it's a list Mm. of things and him mocking all of these kind of poses and then there is this bizarre drop in the sort of uh uh in the bridge where Sorry, music people, please don't come for me. I think that's what it is. Where he reveals that this woman is grieving her mother. And as a Mm. woman who is grieving her mother, I did not appreciate that. Because it's like, what are you doing, Bo? Are you trying to make us feel sympathetic with this woman? Are you, you, or for these women? Like, what what are you spinning here? And you've been on the internet since you were 16. Do you not understand how you're taking a pop at people who are putting their lives? You know, if you don't like it, fucking look away. Like, it just felt like a really bizarre, like, group to target along with, like, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm. because really, that's, I can't see anything other than it being misogyny. So I was really disappointed and angry, um, you know, after, because, you know, that's probably what um, the little lass in eighth grade would be doing as a character once she got to high school and stuff, you know? So I was just like, I can't, I can't put these two together but then we come to being really it's more to do with the um being perplexed about the adulation now the flashes Mm. that i really liked are the ones where it felt that we were digging more specifically into bo burnham's particular experience right because the the sort of refraction 
of him commenting on a reaction video to a song of his and it becomes this kind of infinite loop almost and the different layers of his thought and him really admonishing himself and I thought god this is a really interesting and like accurate rather than like clever clever way to represent a sort of depressive thought spiral and of course because he is uh, uh you know a youtuber not so much anymore um but but has that experience I was like oh this is your you know you are someone who is incredibly qualified to sort of use this medium so I mm. thought that was really interesting and then at the very end even though I thought it was a bit broad with him sort of thinking he's outside and then he's not and then he's back inside but he's projecting it and he can like have a wry smile and I'm glad he can have a wry smile I was not necessarily wryly smiling by the end of it but you know it's not to say that it's outright terrible I just don't think it's very good so when people are going absolutely buck wild for it and I've been thinking about this as we already know far too uh, much <laughs> than I should be but I think what I've managed to kind of pick apart is that on one side it's you know broadly about depression but on the other side it's broadly about the pandemic and I think this is the first mm. the first thing I've seen that that is available on such a scale that is directly about the pandemic that really is relatable to people's experiences it's mm. not like oh here's a heist <laughs> happening in a pandemic uh, yeah yeah and I think it's the first thing that particularly for audiences in America that they've had because I feel very spoiled in that I had um, access to see Daniel Kitson's dot 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 towards the end of last year, which I thought was one of his one of the best things he's ever done, um, and a really interesting way of kind of tracking the pandemic as it's still going on. So I think as well in terms of the UK comedy scene, part of me was like. I've just seen this so many times before because if anyone has been to the Edinburgh Fringe about 50% of it is sad white boys and people who are mm -hmm. probably not very well and you end up being more concerned than laughing at their jokes you know because I want everyone to have a nice time I think in terms of people's well-being that's more important and I'm not as someone who does a lot of comedy about their own trauma the point is is that I've I've been to therapy <laughs> I do that first mm -hmm. and then I can find the funny in it or express what I want to say about it. And I think there is merit in being able to sort of express something that is incredibly raw. Like, you know, look at Hannah Gadsby and Nanette. But what everyone forgets is there were jokes in it. <laughs> like if you watch Nanette, it is still a comedy show with some really brutal moments in it. But there's still jokes. And I think I just don't get why people think it's as maybe innovative as it is, but they just probably haven't seen the same things that I've seen, you know, and what's and what's available. But then at the same time, I'm like, but look at Chris Gethard's career suicide. Like that's mm -hmm. that's longer than an hour. That is incredibly funny. I mean, we all know that I'm a total Chris Gethard stan. Um, 
but with but but warranted you know um and that is one of the funniest and most touching shows about depression I've ever seen and I just yeah so it's this weird thing where I'm worried for Bo Burnham I worry that what it plays into the uh trope of uh tortured artists and that depression is a great creative um fuel because I would like to argue that this actually proves that it's not um mm. and yeah I just I don't get why people are so amazed by it I really I really don't and but I think you know for all these different reasons we are absolutely allowed to be really desperate for something that represents our experiences as a freaking species during an ongoing crisis and so I you know part of me wants to sort of talk to everyone who really really loves it and say okay this is essentially your first love it doesn't mean that it's going to be your only or best love but it's formative because it is you know one of the first bits of pandemic art and a friend of mine said that he thought it was done really well my friend who's um, in LA and that it really reflects our experiences back to us and I'm like yeah I think it is a good mirror but at the same time it feels very surface level to me and that's why it's lacking um oh god is that everything I was gonna say I think it is I've been talking for a long time <laughs> sorry <laughs> But yeah, oh, I just, oh, to reiterate, I wish him the absolute best and I really hope he's well and depression is just such an insidious and horrible disease. And as someone who is trying to write something about their own um, <laughs> uh, mental health experience during the pandemic, like absolute solidarity, but I just... I'm looking forward to his next feature film, Ed. Shall I say that? So, uh, I think I'm closer to the consensus than you, mm, but only yeah. in the sense that, like, I don't know, Glasgow is closer to Florida than it is to Mars. You know, like, <laughs> like there's like, like I, I don't, I don't dislike it. Um, I don't love it, and and you know, as you say, I, I am perplexed by the adulation because I watched it and I thought there's some great um, comedy songs in this. I think. The staging of it is really impressive. I, I think what he does with that one room and with um, what looks like 50 grand's worth of equipment <laughs> um, yeah. by the end of it, all of the, the stuff he's got around him uh, is incredibly uh, impressive and, and very uh, innovative. I particularly like what he does with like the mirror ball where he has oh. the, the, the light on his head and he looks so up right. and suddenly... Uh, all of that stuff is like really cool and it is great at the end when there's like brief glimpses of the production essentially where he puts in you know him setting up the flowers on his eyes for the white woman's instagram song and stuff like that like he's clearly very talented and very and, and put a huge amount of effort into this you know over the course of a year um i think for me the white woman's instagram song i actually have that as one of my one of the things i i most liked about it not because it because I think the the jokes about like white women uh, online kind of having Instagrams that are all kind of like gauzy and glossy and and not really about anything is is a fairly tired trope yeah, at this point. But I thought with that, what I found interesting about it was when it gets to the the section where it's heard like talking about her mum being dead for ten years and all that. 
I thought the point of the song there, and then this was kind of back to boy what he says later, like offhand in one of the few bits where he's kind of directing directly addressing the audience, was that whole song is about the collapsing of the human experience mm. um, that occurs on something like Instagram, where you do have like if you scroll through someone's feed, you go from like oh you know like foam latte art to the worst day of someone's life, yeah. you know, and um, I liked that as as an idea, but. Um, it is kind of like wrapped up in in tropes that I think are, you know, at this point fairly well worn uh, material. Uh, and, and as he says, you know, at the end, he hasn't really been doing comedy for five years because his panic attacks when he was performing on stage meant that he couldn't perform live. So maybe some of the material in it is um, from like twenty seventeen, where maybe that joke would have hit a lot harder and have felt less like, um, yeah, tired. Um, yeah. I also really liked his. Um, FaceTime with my mom uh, song. Oh, yeah. I thought that yeah. that was very funny. Really good idea. Uh, really tied into like personal experience. It, I related to it because like during the pandemic, uh, like I have a daily phone conversation with my parents just to kind of check in on them. Which initially started because um, you know you <laughs> just didn't know if one of us was going to die and so yeah. you wanted to kind of like check in and, and make sure and then since then it just became like a, a kind of a nice thing just to kind of like say oh you know how's your day been um which has been nice to kind of keep up but in the early days was definitely kind of like you know just making sure that we we're all alive and um I thought that was that was very funny and that felt very personal um I think my problem with the special is it all feels kind of very glibly bleak. Yes. Um, uh, so uh, I just enunciate that better. Glibly, not ghibli, uh, as <laughs> I thought voice. I said. Studio um, there's no, there, There's no cat buses in it. Would have been impressive if he had got one. I was going to say, always um, marks down uh, SRS. We, we, you know, you always get at least half a star for a cat bus being featured. Mm. Just, uh, just to give you a little glimpse at the cheat sheet. <laughs> but... You know, and I think that is something that is kind of a systemic problem with like musical comedy is like particularly something that the kind that he does that's very produced and very, you know, like the songs itself are very kind of like crisp and then the production is very glossy. Um, the, the the jokes and the humour inevitably cannot help but be sent through like this real veneer of irony that I think makes it harder to engage with them as like genuine self-expression or like with the with the the white woman's instagram like it's hard to look at that and not think of it as being just like uh extremely mean because of the character that he adopts for that and i think that's just like you know the, the the essential problem with what he does and how that stuff i think works really well on stage where he can kind of play off of the audience and you know like the audience is in on in on the joke and he can kind of like react to them and kind of like play with their emotions when if they get uncomfortable with a joke and then suddenly he can kind of like have some reversal where people can be like aha yeah he's, he doesn't mean what he's saying and i which i think doesn't really come across as as well in this situation where there isn't that audience feedback and it's just what ends up coming across is like these really bitter things and then you know he's tackling obviously very uh, dark subject at times you know he has his like climate change end of the world song towards the end where it's kind of like you know like bonnie bear kind of acoustic oh, thing yeah. um which is very effective but again like there's that kind of like level of disconnect and irony so you're not sure how much of this stuff you're meant to take seriously and i think 
that is that is his comedic voice he always has that kind of level of disconnect i think he finds it very hard to step away it's kind of like um i don't know if you've ever seen the kids in the hall sketch where um dave foley plays a guy who can only sound sarcastic yes Um, yes he's like no i always sound like this it's made my life very difficult (laughs) Um, (laughs) that's that's kind of the quality that i kind of sometimes have with him he is someone who has always kind of had that that level of distance and so even when he's being sincere it kind of reads as insincere and that that as well i think is why eighth grade works is he he can mediate it through Elsie Fisher, yeah. who just like radiates sincerity and like just feels like such a real person that um, there is there is less of that distance, even though arguably that is way more of a distance to medium than stand up. Um, but then I also kind of like found myself comparing it to like if you look at some of Mark Maron's recent stand up, which also is very bleak and like is very much like I think his most recent special was called like end times fun which is very much about him considering the the potential of the world ending and like it's all very dark but it's also it feels very raw and very honest and you don't feel even when he's making jokes like sky's on fire yeah, there's money in the sky being on fire and all these sort of jokes you know like <laughs> yeah. it all it all feels real and authentic because he has that authenticity to him and again this is not to kind of like bemoan like saying that that Bo Burnham is not a person who's capable of authentic pain and not someone who genuinely feels these things deeply I'm just saying that his entire persona and how he presents himself is kind of uh, from his early YouTube days through everything he's done um as a comedian as a as a performer is is mediated through like a a fairly thick veil of irony and character and I feel like he's not really someone who can put that away and the structure of the special where it is a series of songs and sketches kind of adds to that as well because you know there'll be times when he's talking into his microphone and you know there's there's a rawness to it but then he'll do a bit where he's like a twitch streamer playing a game of his life Mm. um which i did i enjoyed that bit uh quite a bit where he's like making the genuine kind of complaint that games do occasionally give you hints too early um and he has a great line where he says I'm kind of getting a Death Stranding vibe because it's boring, but it's meant to be, um, which I enjoyed quite a bit. I, I feel like the the, ske- the the special, which he admits at the beginning, is going to be kind of like all over the place because he's trying a bunch of different things and he's essentially using this as you know a hobby, a thing that he can do day to day over the course of the pandemic to keep himself sane or whatever. Um, I think that means that it ultimately doesn't have much of a thesis to it other than maybe the internet is bad yeah which again is not a new revelation and i feel like he makes that point in eighth grade as well and in eighth grade it kind of makes a lot more sense Mm. um to make it there although i will say as someone who has been on the internet since he was like 15 or 14 and someone who has made friendships that have gone on for nearly two decades at this point through being online i always find that sort of stuff rings fairly hollow to my experience i understand you know the internet is is dangerous and horrible and it can be very isolating and it can destroy people's brains and their lives but it can also be a place where people find uh communion can find connection and can you know get out of themselves and to try and meet other people like it it has it's a it's a double-sided coin Mm, and i definitely feel as if 
um, Bo Burnham's work between eighth grade and this really only ex- uh, examines one half of it, and that's fine. That's his 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 prerogative as an artist. You know, that's how he he views the internet purely as this kind of like cesspit. But for me, I think it's it's more complicated than that. And so that that I think to me is is the problem with the special is that it is making a lot of points not necessarily making them particularly well it doesn't feel as if it coheres into something i think experientially it's interesting i think it does get at the experience which is very similar to my own of the pandemic of of being like trapped in my own apartment for most of the year not having to go out except when i need to get grocery shopping yo he likes it to going uh coal mining which i thought was a good reference to it for my experience where i just basically like masked up when i left to go shopping and that was it but i think that's again you were saying that's a very privileged um way to experience the pandemic not everyone had that a lot of people had to like my parents both work in retail for most of the pandemic they've had to go out and go to their job um they didn't have the luxury that i had of being able to go to my office pick up all my equipment and just like set it up in my in my lounge and work from home for going on what 16 months at this point so, so I, I feel as if while there's lots of good ideas in it and i think it is for better or worse important as like a big piece of art that tries to grapple with the impact of the pandemic on one specific person and, and, and articulate their specific experiences i don't necessarily think it's good at that you know it's like, like the jazz, jazz singer. singer. Like the jazz, jazz singer is very important for having synchronized sound in it, but it's not necessarily a movie you're going to sit down and say, "Oh, yeah, that's good." Yeah. Well, thank you for validating me, Ed. It's <laughs> some rush. What have you got this week, please? I've got something that is also on Netflix in the US, but it's not a Netflix production. It's an old movie that just happened to come onto Netflix, and which I have been wanting to see for going on a decade over a decade at this point which is walter hill's streets of fire which is a neo-noir rock and roll musical western <laughs> that um walter hill made on the back of the huge success of 48 hours walter hill for people who don't know a incredible um action director of the 70s and 80s and and he worked into the 90s as well but if you're talking about you know the, the the salad days of his career from the mid 70s to like the early 80s is like when he really kind of was firing on all cylinders and was doing great work um he uh directed 48 hours which was you know this huge hit with eddie murphy and nick nolte on the back of that he basically said i want to make the perfect movie that i dreamed of when i was a teen and so what he did was he made this movie which is set in the 80s but also is kind of the 50s where everyone's greasers on bikes and uh it's all about the kind of like the primacy and power of rock and roll um the story is kicked off when a uh, a singer in a rock band played by diane lane is kidnapped from her concert by a group of bikers led by willem dafoe and of then course. her of <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh and then his her um ex-boyfriend who's kind of this loner with a gun who kind of like wanders around fighting people essentially played by michael Paré, um comes into town and is hired to go and rescue her kind of against his bad judgment he teams up with uh, a 
similarly kind of like tough as nails woman played by amy madigan who people probably know best as the as kevin costner's wife in um field of dreams uh, and they rescue uh, diane lane kind of take it back the, the most of the movie is about them going to rescue her getting her back safely and then kind of like the fights and the action that occurs along the way all driven by this incredible soundtrack of, of mostly original songs two of which by jim steinman the late jim steinman including a song called Nowhere Fast, which uh, Meatloaf also recorded around the same time, but it was written for this movie. And it is just, I think, one of the most enjoyable movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just this complete neo-soaked... Uh, it says at the beginning, a rock and roll fable. That's like the one of the first titles that like flashes up. It is this like completely neon-soaked, um, artificial world that recalls something like you know um one from the heart or um rumblefish with that sense of like you know when when coppola makes that movie and it's based on a book from the 50s but everyone's playing arcade machines where it's just kind of like yeah this kind of takes place in a completely nebulous time period where everything is kind of happening at once and we're just kind of going for a, a vibe more than anything else and um, just everything about it just works for me so well. The action is really fun. The style of it is so good. Like all of the, almost all of the actors are really good. Michael Paré, unfortunately, is just like a, 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 a just a log of wood at the start of it. He has like no real charisma, and that is a real knock against the movie as he is the lead, and you know he's not even interesting in the kind of like the stoic way mm-hmm. of uh, a lot of action heroes. He is just like really really boring, but. Everyone else around him is so much fun. Willem Dafoe, obviously, just like a dependable villain. You can really ask for someone better to play a kidnapping biker. Rick Moranis is in it in a kind of supporting role as Diane Lane's manager slash new boyfriend, which is funny to see considering um, Rick Moranis' other kind of like persona. It's also the same year um, that Rick Moranis was in Ghostbusters. So it's, it's really funny to see him in this where he is like trying to be a bit tougher than the sort of nebbishes that he usually plays um eg daily best known as the voice of tommy pickles is in it uh as kind of like a supporting character called baby doll uh and she is always great she's always such a lively fun cute presence and also it's just super fucking weird because she just sounds like tommy pickles um it's not as weird as when she shows up in um valley girl where uh, she has a sex scene where you're just kind of like this doesn't really seem right, right. No, not with that voice, voice. Um, no. but yeah she's 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 great um, who else is in it like there's just loads of like really really great Bill Paxton Bill Paxton's in it in like a brief supporting role uh, same year he was in Terminator so there's lots of people in it who you look at and they're like on the edge of breaking big all these really young actors um, kind of on the verge of of big great careers and Michael Parry and they all are just like really keyed into this this world that is as I said like just like bright colors big music um and like heightened emotions it's 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 totally appropriate that Jim Steinman provides two songs because Jim Steinman's whole thing was he was like an eternal teenager like all of his songs are just filled with the biggest emotions that you know all of the stuff you did for meatloaf or total eclipse of the heart mm. they're such 
bombastic you know yeah you know, that's why he's on the wikipedia page for wagnerian rock you know he, he was someone who just like believed in the big emotions and feeling things as much as possible and that's what this whole movie is about it, you know one of the songs is the, the the song that closes the film is a song called tonight is what it is to be young which also was the uh tagline of the movie and that's kind of the vibe that puts it all uh that um thrums under the whole thing is this real sense of teenage adventure and excitement and running out into the night to have adventures and get in trouble and everything explodes really easily which i enjoy and yeah there's just there's just so much to to really love about it and reading about the film as well the production of it today as i was uh is super fun because uh walt the character of mccoy played by amy madigan was originally meant to be like a guy and amy madigan came in to read for another role and just basically said to Aldo, I think this character should be a woman. I think I should play her. And he went, sure, why not? <laughs> like that uh, energy of anything goes, yeah, let's give it a go, give it a try. Um, that really permeates the whole movie. And I just found it to be such a joy. I was so happy to finally see it, especially because the soundtrack, as I mentioned, um, which is fantastic and tremendously fun, was a constant favourite back when I worked at the showroom. It was one that was on the iTunes at the box office and would often be played. If anyone listened to this, went to the showroom between 2008 and 2011, you've probably heard several of the songs because I'm pretty sure I played them a lot. And uh, I think that is... It was just so wonderful seeing those songs in context and, and finally getting to see this distinctive, unique... Uh, boondoggle because the movie was like a flop when it came out and kind of derailed Walt Hill's career like the next couple of movies he made were pretty much made because he needed to uh, rectify things after this lost, lost a ton of money but those for me are some of my favorite kinds of movies the movies where someone just takes a real big swing misses entirely but still creates something that you look at it and you say this is this is art this is a distinct vision this is something unlike anything you'll see elsewhere and uh, i i was just so so delighted to finally get to watch it well that sounds awesome <laughs> but cat bus oh there's no cat bus now oh, well nobody's no. perfect no there's an l train okay. which is the chicago equivalent of a cat bus i'll allow it so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot verse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and i think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week look i know i think i've already recommended it before i have a hunch that i have but because i mentioned it and i think it is just always worth watching and for anyone who has really gone all out on mr burnham's inside i would just urge you to watch chris gethard's career suicide because i think the insight that he has as someone who is you know admittedly a little older been around the block a few more times is really valuable and again it shows how you can be vulnerable but still look after yourself and not concern people and get your message across and also there is a bit about possibly the funniest attempted suicide joke I've ever heard (laughs) featuring several New Jersey mothers Um, Mm -hmm. so if that doesn't put you onto it I don't know what will so Chris Gethard's career suicide. 
Cool. Yes. As a, a, a side recommendation to that, I would really recommend uh, people check out the latest episode of Bullseye, the podcast that Jesse Ford um, hosts, where they occasionally do these like short episodes called The Craziest Fucking Day of My Career, where they talk to various people and they talk about something particularly strange that happened to them. And it's Chris Gefford in the most recent one where he talks about the long saga of how he got P. Diddy uh, to go onto his, onto his show. Oh, uh, amazing. Yeah, that's well worth 20 minutes of your time. I think it's on their YouTube page. Uh, if not, you know, it's easy to subscribe to podcasts. I'm going to recommend a movie that I watched for the first time uh, this week because it's expiring from the Criterion channel at the end of the month, uh, which is Babylon, the uh, movie by Franco Rosso about Jamaican youth in London in the 1980s, uh, starring Brinsley Ford, who uh, was one of the key members of Aswad and who performs a couple of songs on the soundtrack. If anyone has watched a Steve McQueen's Small Axe series and kind of wants to see something that's a little more contemporaneous in terms of depicting the kind of like black experience in in England. Um, I think this is like a great one. It's this wonderful slice of life story of various uh, young uh, Jamaican men living in London who are like performing live music at sound systems and um, kind of dealing with harassment from the police and just common garden racism from the people around them uh, i think it's a movie that uh is full of humor and life and like you know it's not all kind of just kind of like you know about the oppression of it it's about the, how the jamaican community in london you know is kind of like really um a vibrant thriving part of, of british life despite the tremendous obstacles that obviously it faced and I think it's just a really wonderful movie that um, of the kind that uh, British cinema in general doesn't tend to make that often, one where there isn't really much of a high-concept thing. It's just about a couple of days in the life of these young men and their experiences and their emotions, and one which I think uh, it feels particularly apt to watch now because it's a nice... I say nice. It's a, uh, uh, a potent reminder of how bad britain has always been to live in if you're not white essentially and i just thought it was fantastic i think it's a shame that it's become something of a a forgotten or lost movie and it's great that uh, criterion have kind of given it the platform that they have and that it's had a chance to find a new audience so that is babylon which is as i said currently on the criterion channel until the end of the month well worth watching particularly uh, if you liked small acts if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, iTunes, all the usual places. Rate us, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 